Hello and welcome to Raising Learners, a conversation about supporting your child's learning at school and at home. Throughout this series, we'll discuss a range of questions. How to have a great relationship with your child's school and teacher. How to keep your child safe online and navigating those sometimes challenging final years of high school. My name's Derek McCormick and I'll be the host for today's episode. To begin with, on behalf of the team here, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where we meet as we record this conversation today. For me, where I am, this is to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Today we're talking about supporting your teenage learner, and I'm joined by David Collins, clinical psychologist with lots of experience in education and schools. David's also the founder of the Brain Grow program. And Colette Davis, Mental Health Coordinator with the Department of Education and Training, Victoria. Hi, guys. Hello. Welcome. Hey, Derek. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, great to have you, and I'm looking forward to our chat. Okay, so the teenage years are usually a time when teens are exploring their independence a lot more, and it often involves wanting to spend time away from the family unit, grow that space. What can you say to parents today about adapting to that change around their teenager and giving that space that they need? Uh, David, do you want to kick off? Sure, Derek. Look, I think the first thing to say is to keep it simple. I think there's a lot of myths and anxiety that parents can sometimes have regarding those teenage years. And there's this sense that the teenage years are just something we need to get through. We just need to survive these teenage years. But I think that actually really sells it short. Teenage years are a wonderful opportunity uh, and it's a time of immense change and immense growth. And for parents, it's a real shift from those younger years where uh, where children are real little sponges towards those teenage years where they're developing a sense of identity and a sense of self. Um, So ultimately, it's it's a time of great opportunity, but also great vulnerability as well. And the one thing that I always say when I'm talking to parents is the importance of being present, keeping it simple, just showing up in their lives is an incredibly important step. But the challenge that comes with that, at one level, we're kind of saying we need to be present. And we need to be there in their lives. But the other level, young people are having this tendency towards wanting to individuate themselves and step away a little bit from their parents and find their own independence. So it's really getting this balance between independence and their main need, which is attachment. And often we think that when teenagers get a bit older, that we need to step away. But actually that need for attachment is just as important when they're becoming teenagers as when they're little babies as well. Great. And Colette, what would you say on the back of what David was saying there? Absolutely. I think we need to be in contact with our kids without suffocating them as well. But it's often difficult because we take it personally when they want the independence Mm -hmm. as a parent. And it does feel personal because they're wanting that distance, but it's a normal age and stage and they're wanting to be able to go, well, who am I? And at this stage of their life, they're trying on different hats to see what fits. And some of those hats aren't necessarily going to stay forever and they scare us and we get really fearful about the fact that we're thinking, oh God, are they going to be like this? Is this who they're going to be? And hanging in there with that, not making the judgments about that is really hard as a parent. But Having very clear boundaries with your kids without stifling their ability to be able to nurture and try and do different things, it's a real delicate balance. And sometimes as parents, we get it wrong. And sometimes when you do get it wrong, it's about saying, I got that wrong. I'm sorry. And it's, we don't lose anything by saying, I'm sorry. But sometimes as parents, it's really hard to be able to go, I didn't understand that or I didn't get that. 
tell me again, help me to understand. And that ability to be able to do that is what you want your kids to have in life. And sometimes you have to trust that all of that stuff that Dave was saying that you've put in place with your child, all of those values and beliefs and ways of living and treating other people, you have to hope that that's going to be enough and that's going to be the boundary. And for better or worse, you're the voice in their head that says, this is who you are. I love you. I care for you. I trust you. Great. Thanks. And in this space of discussing space that teens need and want, what are some practical ways parents can approach that and look out for providing that space teens need? I think, Derek, kind of thinking a little bit about this practical idea, you know, it's as Colette was saying beautifully before, it's really about getting that balance between time in with your teenagers and young people and then time out and accepting that there is a natural push towards becoming more independent towards their, you know, their friends. And I think there's a really simple kind of hack or a little simple strategy where family traditions become really, really important. When you have traditions with your young people, it kind of automates the, the connection. It automates that attachment a little bit where you're doing things and it's a Friday night pizza night or it's a Saturday morning walk or whatever it might be. And it's got to be, as Colette was saying, consistent with your values as a family. But when you have those, kids really thrive off, and sorry, I should say young people really thrive off that predictability. And predictability leads to safety. And we think about the teenage brain, what it needs most from, from a parent is a sense of safety and a sense of attachment. We think about what's kind of going on. There's this sort of sense that we can sometimes have that teenagers are these mindless people who are impulsive and don't really think about the consequences of their actions. And there's this old kind of sense that their prefrontal cortex or their frontal lobes just is really underdeveloped. And there's a sense that that's true, but really what we know about the teenage brain, it's not so much that their frontal lobes or their smart brain is underdeveloped, but it's actually the lack of connectivity between their smart brain and the deeper emotional areas that actually become the problem. And we want to create this thing called vertical integration, which is basically those two areas of the brain, the emotional brain and the smart brain, talking to each other better. And in that way, parents are kind of like architects of that connection. And the more time they spend, the more time they tune into their kids uh, and their young people and the more physical presence they have and proximity through things like traditions, the more that those connections can get made and the more that they can thrive in adolescence and into their adulthood. That's fantastic. Colette, what else would you say to a parent who's thinking, yep, I get it. I know that I need to provide space and be comfortable with that. But uh, how? Uh, Any other tips you'd offer? Sometimes it's actually letting the young person lead. Ask them. Ask them what works for them. What do they need? Because sometimes we're going to make an assumption of based on our own knowledge, based on other kids we might have as well, that, oh, well, my other child liked this or I like that or this is what was space for me or this is what privacy looked like for me or this is what connection looked like for me. And as they grow, it's going to shift and change. You know, sometimes your kids don't want to give you a hug, but that's not personal. It feels personal, but it's not personal. So talk to them, ask them because they're emerging adults and they are needing to know what that conversation looks like, what that negotiation looks like and what what good conversations are, even if they're not agreed. We don't come to an agreement at the end, but open up the conversation in a real one-to-one kind of way when you can. Mm. And this is often what we hear from parents themselves as well as experts in the area. It's about the conversation and that takes practice, of course. Let's go on to the second question because we're talking about connection and relationships. There are other relationships to think about. We know that friendships and peers become really important during these teen years. So thinking about those and also thinking about the current COVID context, how can parents help their teenagers stay connected and support positive relationships that they have? I think young people 
move from being your child to being a person in the world and their friendships become really important and the voices of their peers become really important at this time in their life. And that groundwork that you've done, you have to trust, as we've said, but you have to also nurture their conversations, their interactions, their relationships with their peers. So in the COVID, I think it's really important to be able to have those delineations of time, but also space. I think, David, you might be able to elaborate a bit on this, but being in in a bedroom where you do your schoolwork and you also sleep and you eat is problematic in this environment. And so it is impacting on the young person's mental health because there are no separate spaces. There are no spaces where I can go and actually just be me and try on those different hats to see how I fit without mum and dad watching, without them hearing the conversations I'm having or having. I don't want to have a comment about that. And so that actual stage is a really hard thing to be doing in an enclosed environment. So trying to give them opportunities for privacy that's functional, you know, mm. going for that extra walk and letting them take the dog by themselves or letting them go outside and being on the phone for much longer than you normally would. Yeah, some, some flexibility in those ways. David, what do you reckon in terms of this friend connections and what parents can do? Yeah, I love Colette's example of the dog walk and just that extra little bit of time, Derek. I mean, it's such a beautiful example because, again, if we get back to what motivates young people, we talked about independence, but also social connection. You know, they're two hugely important motivators. And if we can show flexibility to our young people, then we're a lot more likely to see them be flexible towards us as well. And it's this give and take relationship. There's a lovely there's a lovely study that I often talk to parents about when it comes to really trying to understand the mind of a teenager and what motivates a teenager and why social connection is such a key motivator. And there's this lovely study that was done a few years ago where they put young people in a driving simulator. And in this driving simulator, they had to get from one side of town to the other as fast as they possibly could. And there's a series of traffic lights along the way. And the faster you got there, the more points you got. And when they got to the traffic light, it was an amber orange light. So they had a decision to make. Do I floor it through or do I stop? And the, the, the context was if I stop, I lose a guaranteed 10 seconds. So that's the, you know, the safe way. If I try to get through and I make it through, I don't lose anything. But if I try to get through and get the red light, I lose 20 seconds. So there's this kind of risk taking that they have to have. And there was an adult control group as well. And they were kind of interested, well, what will the teenagers do? And the typical view would be the teenagers will be impulsive. They'll be risk taking. They'll try to floor it. And what actually turned out to be the case is that both the adults and the teens stopped. They chose not to take the risk. Mm. But then they kind of said to them, well, why don't you call some of your friends down and get them to watch you do this driving simulator and when they kind of got their friends down to get them to watch it became red light city Uh, the teenagers then went and took the risk they were trying to get through the red light whereas the adults stopped and i always love this example because it really highlights what motivates teenagers Uh, and in this case it's social connection and it also highlights this idea of what we call hyper rational thinking and it gets back to this idea that sometimes we can think that teenagers just they're mindless they don't think about the consequences of their actions but it's actually not so much the case. Often teenagers perfectly see those consequences. They just value the rewards more. And one of the biggest rewards is social connection, as Colette was saying beautifully before. And we need to facilitate that as best as we can. I think it's really hard sometimes for parents to, especially if you think one of their friends is a bit a bit of a loser or someone you don't like, you might think in your head, really, you know, just get, get rid of him or don't work with him. Don't hang out with these people. That's a real rational way of thinking about it as an adult, but they've got to get through that. So be a voice there, be the voice of reason sometimes without pushing too hard, but also knowing that sometimes you need to. So what I take away from that is, you know, when, as a parent, if you're thinking, uh, I want to give that flexibility and that space. Um, but I'm finding it really hard. 
Or as a parent, you're thinking, oh, I'm really not sure about that particular social connection. Those things you should try and hold and contain because what you're doing really is providing social connection as a really important currency, a really a need more than just a desire, a need uh, that teenagers have. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think just picking up one more point on that, Derek. And picking up on Colette's point is that if you can help have an open conversation about the red flags in relationships, if you can kind of help identify what are the kind of red flag behaviors that you might see either in a friendship or as teenagers get older, they start exploring romantic relationships a little bit more, which is a really important area that can create some anxiety for parents as well and helping young people to understand, well, what are the red flag behaviors that I might see in one of my friends or a potential partner that I need to look out for? And I think that open conversation and being brave with that conversation is really important and starting early is really important on that one too. And we can kind of hold back, but I think the issue becomes there is that then our young people enter those, probably especially those romantic relationships, flying blind a little bit and that then puts them in a little bit more danger or a little bit more risk. And some of the research will say that breakups are actually a key predictor of mood problems. And some research will say that's actually one of the number one predictors or one of the key predictors of it. So if we can have those discussions, take those relationships seriously, be very non-judgmental. And I think that's particularly, it's true of all young people, but you know, the LGBTIQA community, that's a really important one as well to take a really non-judgmental open approach. Mm, great. Thanks, David. I, I know that with our work on raising children, .net.au, we, we have recently published some stuff for parents around that, around relationships and, and safety. And what comes through is what you're saying, the message of have conversations early and be brave as you can with them because you're investing in, in a lot of safety for the future. Derek, can I just add, with Department of Education, you know, there is a whole curriculum around respect for relationships, around what does respect mean? And it echoes all the stuff we've been speaking about today, all the things that teachers are trying to reinforce that you're putting in place. So really have a connection with your school to find out what they're talking about with their respect for relationships, how they're framing that. Because having the conversation in the same way, in a joint way, knowing when those conversations are happening, it reinforces each other. And working together to be able to have those conversations is often really helpful because kids may hear you, but then hear it from a teacher and hear it differently and then have the conversations in class and hear it differently again. It, it doesn't hurt to hear it many times. And when it comes to spotting red flags for parents and parents listening who might be wondering, what am I looking for? Yeah, absolutely. So I think when it comes to red flags and educating young people about what red flags might look like in a relationship, friendship or relationship, it's about looking at specific behaviors. So any behavior that a person might do towards the young person that takes away their sense of safety or their sense of control they're often significant red flags. And pretty common one that we'll often see now is young people, and I'll see this a lot with the clients that I work with, where somebody will request a certain type of photo from another person to share those photos. And obviously that raises some significant red flags as well as some legal issues as well. And this is a fairly, you know, it's a difficult topic, but it's a fairly important topic as well. And very often the language from the person requesting these things will be, come on, your friends did it, or I've had 50 other people share these things. Why can't you share it? And there's the, what they'd call a gaslighting kind of aspect to it. So there's this aspect where they get you to question your own views and your own sense to try to get you to do something that you don't want to do. And as a result of that, it's really important again to get back to those authentic discussions and start those discussions early and be overt with it. Just be as overt and, and open as possible and say, this is absolutely possible that this might happen to you as you get older. Somebody might make a specific request like this or somebody might ask you to do something. And let's talk about how you might respond to that. And 
And again, it's about being brave with those conversations. I think, you know, having it as a given, this is a given conversation that we have as a parent that we talk about our private self and our public self, trying to break it down when they're really, really young around, you know, this is what we do in public. This is what we do in private. This is what is safe. This is what isn't safe. If it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't right. If you've got an alert going off in your body, whether it be physically or whether it be emotionally or whether you're thinking a certain way, listen to that. Ask us, come and talk to us about that. We're not going to judge, you know, and it's really hard as a parent not to judge because you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so unsafe. Um, and it's really hard to hold that in. But it is about being able to have those conversations early. Mm-hmm. Thanks, you, Colette. Uh, quite right. David, this is for a lot of families that are going through a critical time because it might be VCE or VCAL students and, and also COVID context. So it's another layer uh, of challenge going on. In fact, in my own life, I have an 18-year-old whose graduation from high school has been cancelled. So in that situation that many parents are in, how can they help their teenagers stay motivated, and stay positive? There's a lot of learning to do, and it's quite a daunting time. So what would you say to parents around keeping the motivation up? Yeah, absolutely, Derek. I mean, I think your point about losing the graduation and then schoolies and these kind of things, there's a lot of grief going on. I have a wonderful, wonderful young friend and neighbor of mine who I talk to regularly about this, who's missing out on schoolies. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of grief associated with that. But I also think it, you know, this issue of learning from home, which some people still, young people are still doing here in Australia in different states. It's been really challenging because if you think about learning, it's a deeply social process. Learning doesn't occur in a little individual bubble. So if you think about what these brilliant teachers do in the classroom, it's their tone of voice, it's their body language, it's a smile. If it's think about their peers, you know, young people will pick up a lot of cues from their peers. It might just be a quick question or it might be just watching what their peers do that give them a guide into what they meant to do in the class. So we're asking young people to learn in a way really that most have never learned before. And it's really, really challenging. And what it actually does is it takes away a couple of their core needs which is, as we said, around social connection, which, yeah, sure, we have Zoom and all these other things, but they're not quite the same. But also another key motivator for young people is novelty. Young people really love new stuff and their brain, their dopamine systems respond really, really strongly to novelty. And that actually starts the motivation chain. And I think the key thing for parents is there's nothing wrong with having high expectations of your young person, but those expectations need to be flexible. And the key balance here is having flexible but reasonable expectations and warmth, emotional warmth. And if you have both of those things together, then I think you give yourself a really good opportunity for those young people to actually feel like a degree of motivation to go and achieve things. And if we hack into this other idea, you know, young people will often say, well, why do I want to do this? I'm never going to use this material again for the rest of my life. It's the kind of classic line that every teenager says. But again, if you kind of try to understand what motivates a teenager, often the line we can use is, well, if we work reasonably hard during our, our teenage years, then what we do is actually give ourselves more control over our future and more independence and more choices, which can really motivate us as well. But that's not necessarily totally linked to the specific outcomes we get or the grades we get. That is definitely what I would call a hack. (laughs) Hacking into the desire for independence and calling some of these pieces of hard work during uh, late high school as um, investments in the thing you really want. What else would you say around keeping motivation up for, say, a year 12 student? 
I think what David was saying around young people are always looking for the novelty and what happens in schools is we use a whole lot of content as the vehicle to teach the skill. And so young people often don't see the skills that they're, they're getting. They just see the content, the content. I've got to get this done. I've got to get this task done. I've got to get this thing done. And that's just the vehicle. So trying to go back with as a parent to go, well, what's the skill? What skills do you already have? How do we build on what you already have? How do we look at that and reinforce that? So often parents, I'm a mum and I don't know, my kid's 10 and he's in grade five and I don't know how to do some of the maths that he's doing. I've forgotten how to do that. So I can't help necessarily with the content of that, but I can help with delineating what kind of skills, what would you do next and how would you do that? Sometimes being that inquirer to ask some of the questions and them showing you what is it that they already know. That's motivating as well because they're able to then say, oh, well, I'm actually showing mum, teaching mum. I actually do have some skills here. As a parent, you don't, you can't know the content. You can't necessarily know all the things that they're trying to do at school, but you can ask about it. And acknowledging, I think the struggle is the other part. The struggle's real. It may not seem like that for you, but for them, it feels like the end of the world. It's, you know, I'm not getting this. I'm not doing that. And, you know, I'm now not seeing my friends and all of those things that keep me afloat, the things that I do for joy, that I do for just the enjoyment of it and hanging out with my mates and the incidental things I'm not doing. And so that is impacting on young people's mental health because the things that balance the other stuff isn't theirs. If we can reinforce those, even in this environment, that helps good mental health. We have to nurture those. And as parents, I guess that's probably the other hack. Try and find ways to nurture those things. It's the conversations you have. It's the, my little boy, I love art. I used to be an art teacher many, many years ago, as well as now working in Department of Education in a different role as an allied health person. I have to be really mindful that the things I love might be something that I'll share with my young person who may or may not be interested in that, but it's the conversation. It's the way in which we talk about those things, the joy that I show and the things that I love, trying to be able to seek that out in my young person. They don't have to like the same things you do, but what do they love? How do we find ways to reinforce those things with them or build them if they don't have them yet? Mm. So great ideas there around kind of staying positive and focusing on motivating aspects of what a child has in their skill set and and what a young person has to look forward to. Um, and that's a bit about sort of changing the story, isn't it? Because often the year 12 story is a bit um, a huge deal year, whereas really it's a beginning of some new stages of life. And we don't know what a, a young person will do in the first year, two years. There's often changes in direction after that. So focusing on skills and, and what gives them joy, it sounds like a great way to go when the future is just beginning, really. And I think on that, Derek, as well, just a couple of really practical things that parents can think about and picking up on what Colette was saying also is that for young people doing year 11 and 12, you know, two really evidence-based approaches to study, do practice exams and do plenty of practice exams. They're a really good, you know, the evidence suggests that they're a really good way to study and teach what you learn. So encourage your young person, as Colette was saying, to actually teach you what they're learning. And that's actually when it comes to learning and memory, they tend to bed down the memory a lot better than just simply going through your textbook and reading your notes over and over again, which is really important. And ultimately, I think what Colette's saying is focus on the process more than the outcome, because you get a lot more joy and motivation through that and ultimately focusing on the behaviors that are going to lead to the outcome more than the outcome itself. You know, how many practice exams are you going to do? How many times are you going to go and talk to your teacher and do a little lunchtime kind of catch up with them? How many questions are you going to ask in class? But importantly, what days off are you going to have during the week? What are you going to do to look after yourself? What behaviors are you going to do to try to maximize your mental health through that time? And that's true of year sevens all the way through to year 12. That's great, David, because I think the rewards part is the stuff we forget sometimes. Is it's 
it's the reward you've got to give yourself, but you have to build it in as a parent sometimes for your young person because they're just going to be head down, get this done, or I don't want to do that, it's a bit too hard, or regardless of what age they are, find ways that are meaningful for them to reward themselves. And if people listening would like to keep hearing more about these last years of high school, we do have an episode in the series that focuses on VCE and VCAL. And it focuses on, it discusses with some career counselors and so on, and what more practical tips are around navigating that year. But what I'm hearing from you guys is it's really good to focus on the journey, not the destination, and to have a healthy and uh, as enjoyable as possible journey through that year. Mm. I'm going to move on to a, a final question, and it sort of brings us back to where we began. And um, Colette, we are having an unusual year. Yep. COVID has changed the landscape quite a lot. And it's placed a lot of limitations on people across the whole world. But teens are feeling it acutely. So just going back to this notion of independence and how it really is an important driver for teens, how can parents help their teenager navigate what is essentially a loss of independence at a time like this? What helps from your point of view? I think having the real conversations with your kids. You are it for them at the moment. And, you know, we're all frustrated and call it when you are like you will have a reaction. Sometimes not a response. We're not, we're not robots. And sometimes we're going to react. Um, and sometimes it's not a good reaction. It's not a response. It's not well thought out because in the moment you're frustrated as well, but acknowledge that to a young person. Say, you know what? I was really angry or really upset or I flew off the handle. That was not a normal response. Being able to acknowledge that teaches your young person that, you know what? Sometimes we don't respond in the way we should or we don't react in the way that we should. And here's a model for how we come back from that. I think. Putting your teenager into a corner, if you do that, if you put a whole lot of boundary and rule, if you don't hear and you don't listen, they will flash out, they will act out or they will run from you. And it is a really fine balance. If it's mental health and you're seeing a young person really withdraw, then it is about having those genuine conversations and seeking help out there if you are really concerned as well because you can't be expected to know what to do and how to do that, but you can notice. And the ways that you notice are is it different to where the way that they have normally been under normal circumstances? Has there been a shift or a change in the way they interact with you or their peers or their friends? That might be right for their age and stage, but it also might be that they're struggling with their mental health. They're struggling with connection. They're struggling with all of the things that normally keep them afloat that aren't there anymore. The things that I can do to make myself feel better, to have good mental health may not be there, especially during this time. So trying to reinforce them, but asking the question and not being afraid as parents sometimes to ask the question, are you thinking this? I've noticed that. Don't make a judgment or assumption about what they might be thinking, feeling or doing. Ask the question. You may not know what to do from there, but what you do is help seek and what you teach a young person is help seeking behaviours. And the stuff that I think there's been a theme the whole day is about warmth. It's really hard when you're frustrated and tired and just had enough and fed up with the way things are right now. It's really hard to actually show warmth sometimes because you just need your own moment and your own time. So take it as a parent. Find ways to be able to do that for yourself. If that means talking to your mate on the phone while your young person is talking to their friend, do that if that's what it takes because you need to keep your mental health to a place where you can respond to your young person. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And I think Colette, you know, picking up on a lot of those points, one of the things I often say to parents is that expect big emotions 
from your young people. That's what their brain's meant to do. We were talking before about that emotional part of their brain and that smart part of their brain still trying to connect. So they're going to have big emotions, particularly at this time when some of their most very basic needs aren't being met around social connection and novelty. I often say that your job is to be like a big old Tupperware container to the young people. They're going to spill out a whole bunch of different emotions to you. And part of your job is to try to catch those emotions and become an emotional container for them. The way you do that is through your facial expressions, your body language, your tone of voice, all those things convey safety and control to your young people. And thinking about Colette's point about having those authentic and open conversations. Teenagers, they're so good at sniffing out disingenuous intent. They're like bloodhounds at the airport. You know, if you're not authentic with them, they'll pick that up really, really quickly and you'll generally shut them down, which is where we need to go back to, you know, starting early and starting those brave conversations from a young age. And you know, on that mental health side of things, again, Colette's point was was really well made is thinking about what your young person's baseline is. And if you see change and, and significant change, and often it's social withdrawal, or sometimes it's anger as well, you'll see acting out behavior. And it's really easy to label that as naughty behavior and bad behavior. But what we need to do is look underneath that. And what's the function of that behavior? Why is it a young person acting out? Why are they yelling at you? Why are they yelling at their teachers? Why are they skipping class? Whatever it might be. And very often, if you become a detective and you understand what's going on, what's often under that is anxiety and fear. And it's often anxiety and fear that drives it. If you come down on that hard by yelling and screaming, what you're going to do is you're going to upregulate those emotional parts of the brain and you're going to make them more angry and more fearful and you create a vicious cycle. And then that's harder to get out of. You know, I think a key point just on a practical level as well, if you're worried about your young person's mental health, a great place to start is with your GP or with your school as well. Um, And having a really great relationship with your GP. I wouldn't mind adding. I think when we're talking about the realness and the, how it actually feels for, for your young person, they are feeling those emotions intensely and it's warranted. Like some of it around all of the losses that they've experienced is real and we feel it. We feel it as adults, all the losses that we're experiencing, but particularly for our young people right now, we know we're coming into fourth term. We're coming into the last part of the term and this is where all our celebrations happen. This is where we go into, you know, graduation ceremonies or they go on camp or, you know, there's all of these ways in which we mark the passage of time for this young person that's significant that we don't have right now. It's about being able to say, okay, what rituals will we now try and put in place? We know we may go back to schools, we may not go back to school, so some of those rituals aren't necessarily going to be there. But my little boy, for example, they just had a bit of a graduation in their class around um, one of the subjects that they were undertaking because that teacher is going on maternity leave. So it had to happen earlier, but he didn't get to go on camp. So they made some stuff that they would have made on camp. There are only little things. It's not the same and let's not pretend that it's the same. But you have to replace it with something because if you don't replace those rituals, if you don't give the opportunities to discuss the sadness and the the loss, then they will replace it with something else. Any other last practical tips for parents who are, again, looking at a teenager who has lost a lot of real world independence and last thoughts in terms of helping them deal with that loss? trying to keep some of those separate spaces, like allow some privacy, allow times where, you know, don't go into the room, knock. Allow that time of personal and private space. Hear the conversation that that they need to have with you that you probably didn't have a chance to do because of how busy our lives were. It is an opportunity, even though it's so very difficult. 
I think from my perspective, Derek, I mean, they're all great, great practical points. And also, you know, we've talked about this quite a bit, but don't take it personally. Teenagers are actually wired in a lot of ways to take, for example, a neutral face that you might show and perceive it as a threat. So you might sit down with your young person and say, you know, just something really nice and, and something really neutral. And they might actually take that as an attack. And again, taking it not personally and being that container to make sure that you can hold the emotions that they're showing. It's wonderful. I want to thank you both. This has been a really rich conversation. I'm taking away a couple of key things myself around staying genuine in the moments that you can have the conversations because teens know when you are genuine, they can tell. And then being open and honest around when things aren't going well for you and them and talking with them at their level, which is something you discover over time. So I want to thank you both very much for, for this chat today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Derek. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you've enjoyed listening, why not subscribe? Tell your friends. For more tips and information about the topics we've covered, visit raisingchildren.net.au and education.vic.gov.au. I also want to acknowledge the Department of Education and Training Victoria for their support in this series. We hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, take care. <music>